1: Hello. Today in the Loopcast, I have Devin Burghardt from the Institute for Research and Education for Human Rights, and we are discussing his latest paper, their latest paper, um, Breaching the Mainstream. So the reason we wanted to have a discussion on this paper is we have been, so we're, we're kind of writing a statement of purpose on this, but I will kind of give a rough draft here, which is, what happens when extremism is mainstream. So what that means is what happens when somebody can hold an extremist idea and go about their life normally. So anti-vax, uh, anti-COVID, uh, one-six truther, uh, QAnon—you know—all the topics that we've kind of covered on the show at length. What happens when you can't really impose social costs on on them for various reasons? You know, it's beyond an individual; it's organized, etc. And then the second point of that is. What happens when that becomes a constituency, when that group of people starts electing people, starts making political decisions, right? So it's not just about political violence in this case, but also about elections, about norms, about putting people into a seat of power. And in this case, we're looking at state legislatures with my guest, and uh, we're going to kind of Dive into that and and kind of look at that those dynamics. So with that, uh, please welcome Devin Burkhart. How's it going?
0: Hey, it's great. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course, of course. So I want to maybe start off with kind of coming to this article and coming to you and coming to the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights was kind of a pleasant surprise because I think Emmy, our good friend, uh, friend of the show, mutual good friend. Uh, I think she retweeted you and then uh, retweeted it, and then I was like, oh, this is a really cool paper. This fits exactly uh, with what we're looking at. And I I think the audience feels the same way. Like they aren't necessarily aware of of your organization. So I was wondering if you could kind of give us a top view of the Institute for Research and Education on Human Rights.
0: Yeah, the Institute has been around for actually for quite a while, but quite often in a kind of more behind the scenes role for a number of years. Uh, We were actually started way back in 1983 by our founder, Leonard Zeskin. Lenny is a MacArthur Genius Grant winner who's literally written the book on white nationalism. You know, if you haven't had a chance to read Blood and Politics, A History of White Nationalism from the Margins to the Mainstream, I would highly recommend it. Uh, it is an amazing look at the period between the 1970s up until 2008, the kind of the rise of white nationalism. Um, so he started the organization back in 1983. Um, but shortly after it started, he uh, was asked by the what was then the National Anti-Klan Network, which later became the Center for Democratic Renewal, uh, to move over to that organization uh, and help direct their work, both in, in countering the Klan during the early 1980s, as well as to take up their efforts to challenge things like the posse comitatus and their rise throughout the farm crisis in the 80s. Um, The Institute remained kind of an archive and research arm uh, for a number of years and, you know, built up a massive archive at our headquarters in Kansas City of, you know, thousands upon thousands of linear feet of uh, primary documents from every... All sorts of different far right groups, um, but really m- maintained a low key, mostly providing training on how to do, conduct research during that period, as well as organizing with you know various organizations around the country, groups like the Coalition for Human Dignity, where I started back in the early nineties, or the Northwest Coalition Against Malicious Harassment, or the North Carolinians Against uh, Racial and Religious Violence, uh, to you know groups fighting David Duke down in Louisiana. Um, so it's an you know kind of a low key organization that was doing a lot of tremendous work, um, as well as maintaining the research side, which was really essential and important to kind of maintaining some continuity for those of us who were concerned about these issues. Um, I joined the institute after working for the center for Dem- for the Center for New Community in Chicago for about a decade. Uh, I came on board in two thousand eight, uh, and at that point you know, with the rise of the Tea Party, uh, we realized that we needed to move beyond kind of a behind-the-scenes technical support and research wing to having a more front-facing organization. Uh, and we did that through a lot of research and organizing around the Tea Party, uh, and then have continued to uh, maintain our work, you know, addressing emerging threats to civil and human rights since then, you know, for a lot of number of years. our uh, One of our key mentors was the a uh, late C.T. Vivian, uh, who, you know, from my first meeting with him was really important in helping us understand that fighting fascism can be fun, and about the importance of the need for engaging in the struggle for those, against those who were emerging as, you know, serious threats to democracy and human rights. So that 's kind of how we how I got involved and how you know we 've kind of emerged over the years. Um, you know our focus has always been kind of that space between the margins and the mainstream you know organizations like um, You know, like People for the American Way and others do a really great job of looking at what's actually happening in the mainstream, you know, pointing out what the religious right is doing or, you know, big national figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, groups like the Southern Poverty Law Center do an amazing job of looking at that kind of accelerationist and neo-Nazi wing. Um, Our goal has always been both to have a kind of cast a wide net and look at the breadth of things, but also to pay really close attention to that sweet spot in there, that space between the margins and the mainstream to see where those connections and those crossovers are happening. Um, that's what's, that's what led us into the work around the tea party. That's of course, what led us around this work and a lot of the other work we've done over the past several years.
1: That's amazing. Like, I, I think to your point, like, I think with the loop cast, we have, we have started to come to that margin, I think, because. For the longest time, like I think we we took our kind of cues of extremism, you know, from the idea of just focusing on the big violent groups, the the violence and the kind of the big sort of dramatic points in, in the history of extremism in the United States. But you know, I think like recently we've kind of come to this idea of, as you pointed out, like looking at that space between the extreme and the mainstream that that sort of margin right that that kind of connective tissue of looking at ideas and people moving from that extreme to to the mainstream so that brings us to the paper that you've written which i think is was kind of mind-blowing to me because um it's very quant but it's also it's very like numbers driven but at the same time uh there's enough background and enough biography in it that it really, it, it's kind of sticking with me. Like I'm on my third read through, and it's it's just excellent. Um, so I'm I'm kind of curious if you, before we kind of deep dive into the constituent parts of the paper, if you could summarize breaching the mainstream for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, breaching the mainstream was our initial attempt to get a quantifiable estimate of how far far-right ideas had moved into the mainstream. Uh, we chose state legislatures in part because um, they play such a vital role in setting public policy, and they've been a pretty important target for the far-right for a number of years. Um, and, you know, in doing so, uh, when we started this project, um, a project which came about kind of serendipitously, um, it started in part because we were, um, continuing to kind of develop our work and tracking, you know, kind of online activity and looking at the role that Facebook groups played in helping to mainstream these ideas. Um, so we were tracking literally thousands of different groups, particularly during the COVID pandemic where, you know, at, at their height, I think we were tracking around 1700 different COVID denial groups, which had around 2.4 million members. Um, you know, and in so doing, you know, we were, you know, in in collecting that data, we were suddenly seeing names that were familiar to us, like, uh, you know, state representative, uh, Aaron Bernstein, or other folks like that popping up. And so we knew that there was something more there that we needed to flush out and, you know, and find ways to kind of dive into that larger data pool that we had to, to find some ways in which we could quantify this. At the same time, After January 6th, we started getting a lot of calls from uh, other organizations, from, from the media, et cetera, asking about this very question, about how far this stuff had spread. And so while internally, you know, we had lots of anecdotes, like we could list off you know, dozens of state legislators who we knew were problematic in terms of their coziness with the far right, we had no idea that the depth or breadth of the problem, um, you know, so in our world, you know, because research is so important to us, and we believe that um, in a lot of ways, great research can be like poetry, uh, we really dove into it. uh, And we wanted to be able to answer that question. So we started, looking at the data that we had and realized that um, we may be on to something here. So what we did in essence was uh, we had to, in essence, turn the question on its head to answer how far this problem had gone, because we had this amazing data set of all these far right Facebook groups. Um, We wanted to then see how many legislators were in them. Uh, You know, it, it's not as easy as being able to look at the state legislator's uh, Facebook profile to see if they're a member. You know, one of the things that happened post Cambridge Analytica is that the kind of information about the the groups that people are members of is no longer publicly available. So you can't see it that way. So we turned it on its head and by having this large data set, we were then able to query that against a a list of... uh, those legislators, uh, individual campaign and official Facebook profile URLs. And in doing so, we found in total 875 different legislators who were members of the various uh, far right Facebook groups that we, we had collected. And that to to us was, uh, you know, one of those aha moments that we were really on to something, like that there was a much deeper problem here than we even ha- had anticipated going into this kind of research quest.
1: Did you, were you ever surprised? Like, I always like to ask this question because we have, you know, really talented and experienced researchers come on the show. And I'm always like curious, like, do you ever get surprised or, you know, within the, the examination of the data, did you find yourself going, you know, were there like, holy shit moments or, oh, wow, that's kind of mind blowing?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, you would think that after almost doing this work for almost 30 years now, that it would be really hard to shock me, because I think I've seen just about everything. But when you see things like, you know, a cadre of uh, legislators in New Hampshire who are members of sovereign citizen groups, that was one of those oh shit moments like there is something deeper here and there's something, you know, Really troubling, or to see you know somebody like State Representative Jim Walsh out here in Washington State who's a member of twenty four of these different groups and is really one of those uh, connectors which helps you know link lots of different organizations together, that was another one of those oh my goodness uh, moments and then I think another thing that really shocked us was how evenly dispersed this stuff was regionally you know it 's so often to fall into the trap of thinking that this type of activity is confined to, you know, the Pacific Northwest or in the Deep South, but to see it almost evenly spread across each region was something that we hadn't anticipated and was, uh, I think, illuminating for us. So then I want
1: to maybe ask why state legislature, legislators, like what from the perspective of politics and kind of the exercise of power, what kind of drew you to state legislators as opposed to, you know, uh, federal, federal legislators or county politics? Like, what, what made you say, like, this is what we're going to focus on?
0: I think it was a couple of things. One is that uh, anecdotally, we knew that there was a growing problem at the state legislator uh, level, you know, we saw individuals like Wendy Rogers pop onto the screen and suddenly start giving a voice to the white nationalist grippers. we saw A bunch of state legislators involved in election denial and stop the steal activity. Uh, We knew that there were, you know, that there were a number of state legislators involved in those kind of January 6th state level insurrectionist rallies. So we knew we had a problem there uh, anecdotally. Um, That was the first thing that clued us into it. Uh, The other thing that we thought was very interesting about state legislators was the serious lack of data that existed about this problem nationally you know when you're dealing with a a problem of the fact that there are over 7300 state legislators around the country um, you know it's a pretty wide swath and in this current era where you um, Newspapers have declined and their ability to do kind of deep dives into local legislators or local elections has diminished dramatically. Um, At a time when people's understanding about state legislatures and their impacts is declining at a time where most people can't name their state legislator, you know, there was a study by Johns Hopkins a few years ago that found that 80% of folks couldn't name their state legislators, which was, you know, which was shocking, but, um, you know, that's Compared to you know one third of them not being able to name their governor, or about half of them not being able to name their their state rep, uh, their U.S. representative, we knew that there was a gap in terms of the the knowledge level that people were having uh, about their legislators, which also clued us into this. And then the last thing that clued us into it was the the serious rise in the kind of far right. Um, pieces of legislation being introduced, you know, kind of legislation aimed at a a range of uh, anti-small-D democracy uh, and aimed at, you know, kind of anti-human rights legislation. So everything from legislation aimed at women's reproductive freedom to voting rights to, you know, the kind of mythology around critical race theory as a you know, kind of proxy to go after teaching about black history and talking about racism to anti-trans and anti-LGBTQIA plus legislation. You know, there was a lot of that going on too. So one of, all of those things made it realize that we had to do two things at once. We both had to look at how far these, how far, far right, far-rightists had made inroads into the mainstream and how they develop connections with legislators and also how far those connections were turning into a kind of legislative impact and how ideas were becoming public policy at the state level.
1: Something like that really just caught my ear is the idea of a lack of visibility that that Like there's more visibility on federal politics than there is on local politics. And there's a line in the paper that I can't shake, which was uh I'm summarizing, but like, you know, doing research through Facebook, the reality is that the data might be an underestimate. Um, which which kind of blew my mind, like this idea that that the local politician, the state legislature has more power over my day-to-day life than the federal, you know, the, you know, federal legislators. So I, I, I'm sort of curious, like, you know, in your research, you know, was the choice of looking at Facebook groups, and we'll kind of dig into this in the mythology, methodology section, but um, was kind of looking at the Facebook groups, kind of an intentional thing, like it's, it's very assumably visible, it's very public, and it's something that can, you know other people can kind of look at like you know why use facebook as that kind of that marker of you know that understanding
0: yeah it was an intentional choice we chose facebook as somewhat of a proxy for political and public sphere engagement because almost everyone is on facebook because it is you know generally fairly public and because we knew so many legislators had some level of activity on the platform that it could serve as kind of a national proxy that allowed us to gauge this stuff and quantify it nationally, as opposed to you know other methods that might give us lots of bits and pieces of data, but wouldn't be as comprehensive as, a, you know, as the kind of data set we collected from Facebook.
1: So then um, from a more qualitative perspective, when we discuss state legislatures, um, wh- how how can we sort of conceptualize the power there? Is it really? So my, my you know my civics is kind of weak, but like it really is only affecting that state, right? And then the laws affect that state, but you know where is this sort of ideology and sort of um, ideologies? is the right word. Where's the ideology coming from? Is it a reflection of the national sort of, you know, the, you know, national MAGA movement being reflected into the state level? Or is it the state level kind of being reflected into the broader national movement?
0: I think it's a bit of both, actually, I think both things are going on simultaneously, you both have, you know, a broad, widespread, um, far right effort you know, in various different forms and permutations, um, moving uh, various different forms of anti-human rights and anti-democracy legislation um, through state legislatures. Um, so it's happening in a lot of respects from the ground up. Um, it's also happening uh, from the outside on in. So what happens in Tallahassee is Im- impacting what's happening in Olympia or what's happening in Springfield is impacting what's happening in Jefferson City, right? Uh, successful efforts to pass far-right legislation uh, are mimicked by others. And uh, one of the things that we found that, was, that we wanted to look at um, that we also thought was pretty interesting was the fact that Um, most often, you know, the kind of legislative impacts, uh, of far-right initiatives are coming, have been thought about as coming about by efforts by groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC, which is known for, um, boilerplate legislation that both is kind of pro-corporate as well as, um, reflecting a lot of different far-right tendencies in it, um, what we found in terms of looking at this collection of legislators is that only around 30% of them were members of ALEC. Um, So we think in part, we've identified a different constituency for these ideas that are then being turned into public policy than we have thought about before. It's that kind of um, magification of of local politics uh, at the state level, at least. Um, And it's certainly having an impact on public policy. One of the things we noted in later parts of the report is how they've been successful at introducing new, in the report, we identified nearly a thousand bills that had been introduced at the state level. A hundred of those, and even 100 became law over the past year. And this includes everything from anti-voting rights legislation to anti-CRT and anti-trans stuff to uh, anti-abortion and all kinds of other legislation aimed at the kind of, you know, core of you know anti-democracy anti-human rights legislation so um while there has been a lot of focus on what's happening at the state at the national level where nothing is really happening um stuff is really actually happening on the ground at these state levels where they are turning ideology into public policy every single day in this constant churn of new ideas um that, that are then being, um, they're initially being developed by the grassroots. They're being supported and encouraged by the grassroots. And then once they're passed, they provide the, the grassroots, you know, additional support and, you know, a kind of a galvanizing thing for them. So all of those things I think are happening simultaneously in this complex world um, that we examine in this report. And I think that's, you know, one of the other things that we've always tried to do is you know, rather than kind of focusing on, uh, you know, billionaires or any kind of boogeyman behind these these efforts that are impacting civil rights and democracy, our goal has always been to try to, uh, you know, flesh out and quantify and identify the movements and networks behind um, these efforts, um, you know, and help people better unpack that and better understand it um, so we get a better sense of what we're dealing with um, and, you know, really, since I started the work at the Institute, it's been one of my goals to really help us figure out new ways to quantify those efforts, um, you know, to to really dispel the mythology behind it, both that this is either, you know, an astroturf problem that's only the result of a few billionaires, or it's, it's you know, it's, you know, everyone, but instead, you know, try to provide some actual context and, uh, you know, parameters to what we're dealing with, uh, which I think helps people better figure out strategies in terms of dealing with it and how to counter it as well.
1: So then this is kind of the elephant in the room is what is the role of Trump in all this? Like, not like when I say role, I don't mean him act, being active, but rather, you know, you know, is Trump and one six kind of being factored into this, or is this largely being kind of done independent and free of Trump? That is, you know, he played a role once and now the movement has kind of moved on, so to speak.
0: I think the research has shown us, at least in this, that Trump was more a reflection of what was already happening on the ground rather than he was the catalyst for it happening. the activities that we were able to track um, were things that were happening independent of Donald Trump, while he certainly poured gasoline on the fire, um, and his efforts to overturn the election um, sh- certainly um, helped uh, crystallize different elements uh, and new coalitions. Uh, you know, the kind of e- efforts to bring together. Uh, COVID deniers, election deniers, and, you know, far-rightists like the Proud Boys under um, under one umbrella in terms of the pushback against, you know, for, from January 1 on, on, or January 6th on, um, is a sign that there's something new developing. But, you know, really, if you look at the trend lines, this stuff goes all the way back to the Tea Party. You know, the Tea Party was uh, more so than, you know, 2016. I like to go back to 2010, when um, you know the Tea Party was really successful at breaking down the various issue silos that existed on the far right, uh, helped build out uh, multi-issue networks, and also refocused efforts on uh, politics in a way that we hadn't seen in decades. Um, those kind of things I think we're seeing the reverberations of now. And a lot of that is being reflected in the data that we've got in breaching the mainstream.
1: That's kind of interesting. And I, I kind of want you to uh dig a little further for us. You know, we um we're talking about networks, we're talking about politics, and you know, as we kind of know, politics, you know, didn't start in 2016. And as you pointed out, it, you know. It would be better to put our starting point around 2010. So, if you could, like, you know, I I guess the first question here is, you know, how much of what we're seeing today at the local level is an evolution or a growth from those Tea Party networks? How much of it is explicitly being grown and sort of evolved from those networks? And how much of it is kind of new?
0: A lot of it is actually goes back to that original those original Tea Party days. Uh, you know, one of the things we were able to do and quantify in the report was the number of le- state legislators who got involved in politics in the first place because of their activism in the Tea Party. Um, you can look at the data in the appendix of the report, and you can see kind of when they joined those groups, and you can see this um, this overall conveyor belt of kind of radicalization that occurs that you'll see them in, you know, 2010 or 2011 start by joining the Tea Party. Um, A few years later, they find themselves ending up, you know, joining uh, different three percenter groups. And then later on, you find them joining things like stop the steel coalitions. So, you know, kind of longitudin- longitudinally, we see that kind of radicalization going on amongst these state legislators, which is similar to the kind of radicalization we saw taking place on the ground. You know, there's a, there's a great study in plus one a few years ago that looked at the kind of uh, radicalization path that happened amongst Tea Partiers. And, you know, they looked longitudinally at the problem, they found that the longer people were engaged and active in the Tea Party, um, the more um, they held ideas of racial resentment and racism, uh, and the more strong they hel- strongly they held those ideas. Um, so given that we know that there were you know, a large number of legislators who um, got on this train on this conveyor belt, if you will, Um, back during the Tea Party era, it was less surprising to us to then see them, you know, move into other avenues of far right activism over the years. Um, At the same time, we also know that there's a large number of those listed in the report, uh, who are new to this, right? Um, they may have come into this space because of COVID denial activism, um, you know. And when they've moved into that space, now they're suddenly inundated with these ideas, you know. This constant churn of misinformation that happens in these groups um, and the kind of act, the kind of feedback loop that happens in those spaces, both offline and. Uh, online and offline uh, and has moved them, you know, pretty dramatically. So, you know, what may have happened over the course of a few years ago beforehand now, in in part because um, things are so supercharged in the social media space, um, that now that radicalization is happening in months. Um, and I think some of that's also ref- being reflected in this data Uh, And it's something we're going to obviously keep an eye on to see how that's how that is playing out as well. So I think you simultaneously have both those trends going on, right? You have the those who were activated and, you know, began their radicalization years ago because of the Tea Party and those folks who got involved with this, you know, this latest round of high intensity activism around COVID denial. Um, So I think that means that Given what we know from the comparisons, you know, when we were tracking the Tea Party at their height, you know, back in 2015, you had a core at that time of around 610,000 members with a, you know, a, a sympathizer base a supporter base of around seven to 8 million and a sympathy base of somewhere between 18 and 22% of the American public, depending on depending on how you ask the question. Um, today, we know that those numbers are substantially larger during the COVID denial period. Uh, and that doesn't include all the rest of the segments of the movement that we're talking about. So uh, we know that potentially we could see more of these ramifications down the road if left unchecked.
1: So there's kind of a phrase you used, conveyor belt of radicalization. And it seems almost, it almost implies like industrial, like it's kind of like, you know, there was a set pathway and a sort of movement through this network. And so the first question, like first part of this would be, you know, would you, you're almost giving it like a more structure and more sort of organization. Is that sort of true and sort of, you know, you know, reflected on the ground in the grassroots or is it, you know, more kind of chaotic, you know, there's, it's not only chaotic, but there's more kind of ideological flexibility, right? So an individual can kind of move between, between networks and between belief systems.
0: Oh, it's definitely the latter. You know, I I speak of a conveyor belt metaphorically to help people understand that there's movement in a direction, but there's lots of on and off ramps to that. There's lots of fluidity. Um, you know, there are lots of challenges along the way, uh, not to mention the kind of, you know, internecine battles that happen uh, within, within and between movements. So all of that is happening simultaneously. Yeah. That's a good point uh, you know, it's definitely more complex than, uh, you know, than a simple conveyor belt, but there's a lot going on. Interesting.
1: So I want to switch footing and really look at reaching the mainstream, the paper. And mm-hmm. I want to, I want to start off with your methodology, right? Um, so you have this huge glob of data from Facebook, you have all this data, you know, how did you organize and sort of begin to attack what did you what was sort of your organizing principles and sort of your your hypotheses going into this
0: Well, our first line of attack was to you know to find data which we could use to query um, that larger data pool that we had so the first thing we needed to find was finding a list of the Facebook profile URLs for state legislators, you know, and given that you're dealing with 7,300 plus of them, uh, you know, thinking about finding all those individually was terrifying, uh, and, and would, you know, would have meant that this simply wouldn't have been a project that would have been impossible with an organization of our size. Um, so thankfully, um, We happen to be having some conversations with the New York Times data team around some of the data that we'd collected. And and they happen to mention to us that Ballotpedia uh, keeps uh, active record of the kind of individual um, uh, organizational or individual official and campaign uh, Facebook profile URLs for, for state legislators. And so... Once we figured out that, um, then it, that first part of this was pretty easy, right? It was a pretty simple query to write, to be able to, to look for matches between the two different data sets. Um, and that's how we found, you know, initially found, um, the range of, of individuals who were in both data sets and then once we had that, once we had that initial search done, then we were uh, really debating the kind of parameters upon which groups we were going to include and exclude from the research report. Uh, You know, we knew we wanted to um, pretty tightly defined far right groups in the report, because it would be easy to have this dismissed as, well, you're just including every group on the right. So the results are meaningless. So, you know, we made some conscious decisions early on to do things like not include data that was specifically Trump or MAGA related. So none of that, even though we've collected some of it, none of that was included in the results of the report. Um, You know, we knew we didn't want to include things like, you know, more mainstream establishment groups, like, you know, the NRA, for instance, Um, in part because we don't think it would tell you much because virtually almost every member of Republicans in the state legislatures would probably have some connection to that. And also because we wanted to draw a pretty bright line between, you know, between the two uh, to show that there was some differentiation going on. And so we had some contours in terms of what we were looking at. Um, Sadly, one of the things we don't have a lot, we don't have also in this data set uh, because we didn't have what we felt was a... Uh, comprehensive enough collection uh, was QAnon related data. So we, because QAnon related groups uh, pop up and disappear so quickly, and because most of them popped up, you know, were uh, removed before we could do a decent job of collecting that data. uh, We also didn't include them in this report. All of that, you know, means is another one of those reasons why we wrote that, a lot of this data we anticipate is underreporting because we didn't have access to that kind of data as well to include to see if there are you know QAnon related legislators that or at least folks who who in the legislature who have joined QAnon related groups. Um, but we wanted to you know keep it broad enough uh, in terms of its context to, to be the range of far right actors. Uh, and groups on Facebook. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that we, you know, pretty comprehensively define that. So, you know, we spent a whole chapter kind of working through our method of how we define the kind of groups that were in and out, um, why we included certain groups and not others. Um, and then we also, you know, had to deal with the limitation of Facebook, right? Some of the groups, um, Simply don't, you know, that are active on the ground simply don't have a Facebook presence. They may have been removed from the platform for violating their terms of service. Um, They may have started on other platforms like Telegram or Gab or uh, Parler or any of the others. Um, But we wanted to have, you know, a kind of really tight, uh, as tight as we could, given the messiness of the overall, you know, Facebook ecosystem, as tight. a look at that platform as we could to give a snapshot of what was going on and what it looked like amongst the legislators. Does that make sense?
1: It it does. It really does. And I think uh, the end product, like I thought like what kind of really blew my mind um, and what I think is very novel about breaching the mainstream is that you explicitly link uh, ideologies and ideological groups to laws, so it's not it, like it's not just a description of oh you know this is COVID denial or this is anti-trans or this is um, you know uh, voting restrictions. You actually show us the laws and sort of the movement from ideology to legislation to actual public policy. Um, so before we even get into that, uh, you you have this great network map in the paper. And I was wondering if you could walk us through that. Like, what are, you know, what is the connective tissue between the ideologies, you know, COVID denial, anti-trans, voting restriction, et cetera, and the legislators? You know, who is playing a role of influence and influencing in these networks?
0: Well, that was one of the interesting things we found is that the that relationship was kind of synergistic. It went both ways, right? That their uh, legislators were being influenced by their participation in in these groups, right? So they're constantly bombarded with these, the latest uh, misinformation and talking points and ideas coming from the grassroots, um, coming from various different groups to which they belong. Um, At the same time, those groups um, are emboldened and they have uh, and people feel good about joining those groups in part because they have the you know the seal of approval by having a state legislator being involved. They provide them some normalization and some legitimacy by being a member of these different groups um, and so when this stuff sp- spills out as it certainly did in dramatic fashion during the pandemic from you know the online world into the real world. Uh, you know, through the you know the efforts in 2020 to um, storm state legislatures with with heavy weapons, to um, the efforts to harass and intimidate um, doctors and nurses, blockade vaccine clinics, to um, you know make it impossible for in some spaces to try to um, bring about effective government efforts to curtail the pandemic, um, those things you know, became real in, in this context. And, um, and as a result, not only was the activism important because it gave them that sense of movement and the kind of networks that they developed in the course of doing that real world activism, but they also were then able, because they had these connections to legislators, to turn that into public policy. Uh, In a pretty dramatic fashion, you know, the fact that they passed um, over 100 pieces of legislation that was, you know, unlike things we've seen in in, in decades over the past couple years uh, was certainly something remarkable, you know, to see the kind of base anti CRT laws um, become, uh, you know, both have a mythology developed behind them. To have them move a a large number of people and have that movement turn into laws that now in some states make it impossible to really talk about racism or even mention, you know, kind of black history uh, is a, a remarkable sign. And that's certainly true also for voting rights and for COVID denial and for the, even the right to protest and, you know, a number of different things that we looked at in the report. Um, kind of the sweeping nature of it was shocking to us. And, you know, we're not state level public policy experts we relied on a lot of great work in that field you know so for like the the anti-abortion stuff we looked at the work that the Guttmacher institute was doing in terms of tracking state level uh, anti-abortion laws for the you know for the anti-protest stuff we looked at uh work done by the um you know by a number of different groups the anti-crt stuff um You know, there was some amazing work being done by a couple of different sources and voting rights from folks like the Brennan Center. So what we did and what we thought was useful was we looked at um, the legislators, which we had identified as members of these various far right Facebook groups and how many of them. Have had sponsored various different pieces of legislation, and that's where we found the numbers to be striking. You know, to see them having sponsored nearly a thousand bills, to see them being, uh, you know, oftentimes authoring and or being key sponsors for over a, a, a total of a hundred bills that became law that roll back civil rights and and you know make it harder to do things like participate in the democratic process was pretty striking to us. And kind of new a new area for us to work in as well, which was kind of exciting to see that um, you know, to see that quantitatively playing out, to see the uh kind of impact of it, you know, in a you know, in a in a public policy me- measure like that was uh something new novel for us. And I think uh something we're gonna continue to do. We're we're currently working at looking at the kind of a, a and um uh, epilogue to this report, looking at um, guns and the number of state legislators who were sponsors of different uh, legislation that was promoted by gun owners of America, you know, the group that is you know, the quote, unquote, no compromise alternative to the NRA, which is uh, founded by Larry Pratt, who's a longtime supporter of militias and other far right activities. So we wanted to see kind of what that, you know, what that looks like. And we're hoping to have that up fairly soon, kind of looking at the, you know, yet another impact uh, on public policy that this group of state legislators uh, is helping influence.
1: So, I mean, my mind kind of wanders if we're talking about the legislature, we're talking about not only the people who pass the laws, but sort of the process of writing a law. And, you know, the first thing that kind of came to my mind is, you know, where are the lobbyists in this? Like, you know, this might sound goofy and, and roast me, but are there like extremist lobbyists? Are there people kind of pushing, you know, for anti-CRT, for anti-trans, and when I say pushing, I, you know, I mean you know having that kind of boilerplate legislation available for the legislator, uh, contributions, uh, etc. You know, so all that influence outside of the legislator, like it- you know, yeah, oh, good.
0: Uh, uh, that's a great question. I think some of the larger groups. Um, that are included in the report probably have some uh, professional lobbyists on staff uh, to help push some of this stuff. But most of the work that we looked at um, was coming from grassroots efforts to lobby, you know, so many of the groups of these Facebook groups helped organize lobby days, they would hold protests at state capitals and then roll them over into um, into lobbying days so they get people to show up for a rally, you know. Motivate them with a bunch of speeches during the morning and then spend the afternoon walking them into legislators' offices, encouraging them to support some of the various bills that are mentioned here. Um, You know, there that is one thing that is happening is that the folks uh, on the far right uh, who are using Facebook, for instance, as a platform to mobilize have learned the importance of state level government and have learned the fundamentals of how to to lobby these legislators to do their bidding. Um, you know they've been successful at winning some of them a lot of them over into um, it, it, into the various groups that they've joined as we identified in this report but they for those who haven't they've also been successful at figuring out ways to lobby and pressure them um, because they've developed up, these larger constituencies that are active and mobilized and, uh, you know, vindictive at the polls if you don't give them what they want. So I think that there is uh, a lot going on there in terms of the, that larger magnification of what's going on on the ground um, that is reflective of larger movement tendencies more so than any, you know, individual group or, you know, set of actors. So this
1: influence, I mean, it's, there's kind of two parts to it. And I'm kind of curious, you know, how much of it is astroturfed, right? So how much of it is, you know, not genuine, kind of the work of billionaires, you know, if we sort of skew towards a conspiratorial mind. And then kind of the second part of this question is, how much of it is kind of learned from the Tea Party, this idea of, you know, all politics are local and you should focus on the state houses over the federal seat.
0: Well, I think that the lesson that they learned from the Tea Party moving forward is to do both and, right? That the idea was that you can't just focus on one and that they made the entire political process a part of their agenda. They knew that they could have an influence both at the federal and the state level, and that you shouldn't ignore one or the other. Um, so that, I think, is one really valuable lesson that they took away from it is, uh, in part, it's easier uh, you know, to win in-state legislators, right? You need a, a smaller overall number of votes to win a state legislative seat than you do to win a, uh, a federal seat. Um, so it's easier, uh, and it also means that uh, uh, your grassroots organizing is more important and can have that Im- impact. Um, so I think that the um, turn that happened during the Tea Party era to actual grassroots organizing uh, has made the difference in the long term, right? that um, whether or not the ideas are created, out of whole cloth by, you know, by, you know, an organization or by, you know, something that is developed at the grassroots. um, There is now a network of grassroots organizations that can quickly mobilize people um, with electoral intentions around a whole range of issues so whether it be anti-immigration politics or you know q inspired conspiracies or um kind of transphobia any of those things can quickly be be used to mobilize this base that they've developed uh for not just for protest purposes but to have electoral impact
1: so then where's the money coming from? <laughs> like, I, it was just kind of like, I'm my, my mind kind of boggled. Right. So you, you know, running at the state level is pretty, you know, easy, right. So yeah, you, you go file some paperwork, you do your thing. Right. But, you know, ad space is still pretty expensive, right. TV, radio, uh, online ads, you know, even, even, you know, at the hyper local level, it's still kind of pricey and you still need money. So in the course of like looking through and doing research, did you ever kind of, kind of find out, you know, you know, what does the financial network look like? What is kind of, is is the money also being generated at a grassroots level? What is, what is that picture or that part of the picture?
0: You know, that's a great question. We haven't yet looked at the Um, financial support for these legislators in terms of the campaign finance stuff. But, you know, we certainly would like to at some point get into that. Um, But for the organizations themselves, um, they don't require a lot of money to do some of this political activity. And it doesn't require the same financial investment to get a state legislator elected in a rural district, for instance, that it does, you know, to win a high profile, you know, senatorial or, you know, Congress, U.S. congressional seat. Um, they, by and large, they've done it by um, two things. One is trying to uh, bring about some kind of shared hegemonic ideological understanding, uh, on, at least in Republican circles. And they've also done it by, you um, Old-fashioned campaign grassroots organizing—you know the kind of door-to-door, uh, knocking—you uh, know, campaign door-knocking, spreading—you know, announcements on Facebook, uh, using—you know—a variety of different methods to to engage people. Um, unfortunately, that engagement is, uh, you know, propelled by you know a litany of. Uh, conspiracy theories and often driven by racial resentment, um, but they have used kind of old-fashioned grassroots organizing more so, at least as from what we've seen, um, that's been far more effective for them than any kind of, you know, big financial support uh, driving this kind of stuff. Um, and you know, through going back to the Tea Party days, outside of some of those national organizations like Americans for Prosperity or Freedom Works, um, very little money you know that came into the Tea Party networks trickled down to the grassroots. Um, they didn't just didn't need it. They were um, they found that they were ideologically motivated enough to overcome any kind of financial spaces that they had. And also, I think that given that there were, um, they tended to be more well-off generally than the rest of the American public, also meant that money was less difficult to come by when they needed it to run campaigns and do the kind of work that they did on the grassroots. So it didn't require kind of outside investment to stir them along and get them engaged at that grassroots level.
1: That's kind of mind-blowing. And, I, I, you know, my mind kind of I think of like somebody, you know, in Denver was telling me, like, it takes, if you want to represent Denver or sort of the more urban urban parts of Colorado, it takes almost, you know, a high amount, six figures, maybe even seven figures, right? Hundreds of thousands to even a million. But if you run in, you know, a rural part of Western Colorado, um, you know, it doesn't take that much. It doesn't take that much money. It doesn't take that much organizing. The media market is cheaper and it's kind of, it's very, it's kind of mind blowing when you really think about it. Um, anyway, with that comment, I, I kind of want to switch footing to the legislative focus and impact. So in the mm-hmm. paper, in the paper, you kind of, you boil it down to, I want to say seven categories of focus. And could you sort of go through that for us?
0: In terms of the legislative impact, yeah. Um, Yeah, we looked at, let's see if I can name them all. This is always a a good test for me. We looked at uh, a range of different anti-human rights, anti-democracy pieces of legislation, everything from uh, anti-abortion and women's reproductive freedom to uh, anti-CRT to anti-LGBTQIA legislation, to anti-protest legislation, uh, anti-immigrant legislation, uh, uh, COVID denial, and voter suppression legislation. Those were the kind of seven areas that we, you know, that we had data um, compiled by other sources that we could then examine by looking at our data set, uh, you know, to tell us kind of the the legislative impact that these groups were at we're being, we're having over the course of the last legislative cycle.
1: Interesting. So in some ways, it, it kind of represents a slice of time, right? In the sense of, uh, I'm looking at the bar chart right now and like COVID denial is, is you know, overwhelmingly, I think 260 bills for yeah. COVID denial yeah, and then voter restriction, anti-abortion. Um, In general, what was the success rate? You know, what was A, the overall success rate and B, where was the success founded in the sense of if you have 100, you know, laws that are passed, you know, of that 100, you know, what was the most successful? Was it COVID denial, voter restriction? What was it?
0: Yeah, so overall, I think we had about a 10% passage rate, you know, I I think it was like 963 or 83 bills that were introduced, and 100 of them became law. Um, You know, of those where it was most successful, you know, what we found was that there were, uh, you know, it was... Both, they were the mo- the largest number of bills. Of course, were COVID denial and voter restriction, followed by anti-abortion, then anti-protest, anti-CRT, all the way down to anti-immigrant. But where they were most successful, where they really had the impact, um, you know, they were, you know, they, despite the sheer number of bills on the anti-abortion front. There were only only four of those at the time of the report became law. I think actually a couple more have since um, uh, because of extended legislative sessions uh, entered into law, but that was still pretty small, um, you know, compared to something like, you know, the anti-CRT bills where there were 148 introduced and 15 of them became law. So, you know, that's, again, 10%, which is roughly uh, what we saw taking place. Um, you know, they were, you know, where it was really quite striking, uh, and where I think is going to be an area to pay closer attention to over this next year, um, is the the anti-immigrant legislation. Even though there were only 21 bills introduced in the last year, 19 of those became law. Um, and we know that many of the groups, even on the COVID denial front, um, are now pivoting to a much more aggressive anti-immigrant posture. Um, and we've started to look at new, uh, a return to new grassroots efforts to uh, stir up anti-immigrant activism whether it be the qanon inspired stuff taking place now down at the border to the fact that groups like the federation for american immigration reform the oldest and most extensive um anti-immigrant group in the country is holding its first big grassroots training for activists uh in las vegas uh next weekend um there is you know Growing signs that anti immigrant politics are going to be where a lot of activity is going to happen in the future. Um, but, you know, I think still the largest overall in terms of the number is we saw what were, were the COVID denial bills. You know, you had 360 introduced, 47 of those became law. Those did have pretty dramatic impacts on public health and public safety. Not only do, them, do a lot of them prohibit you know, vaccine mandates, for instance, around COVID, a lot of them make it harder to have any vaccine mandates around any kind of vaccines. So efforts to prevent the spread of measles or other childhood diseases are going to be harder because these bills make it impossible to, you know, to do state or local level of vaccine requirements for for work or for school or for, you know, for other things. So that's another area we're really concerned about. And then, of course, the the number of bills that were aimed at making it harder to participate in voting was another thing that was pretty striking to us to see. Again, roughly 10% of those bills of the 383 that were introduced to see 35 of those become law uh, and have those bills be uh, so dramatically aimed at making it harder for people to participate and also making it easier to screw up an election uh, next time around um, was pretty deeply concerning to those of us who were concerned about democracy and human rights.
1: It's interesting. The, the voter suppression, how much of that is coming out of a, a sort of far right reaction to 1-6 and how much of that is the legislator looking at local concerns, right? You don't, you don't want a certain group of people voting, you know, for your rival. So, you know, sort of suppress the vote and kind of make your seat safer. So, you know, when we talk about voter suppression, how much of that is a reaction to what's happening on the federal level? And then how much of it is the legislator reacting to what's
0: happening on the local level? It's really coming from two different places. Uh, One is kind of old school Tea Party voter suppression ideals. You know, the ideas of so-called voter integrity uh, and, uh, you know, voter, you know, and cleansing of the voter rolls is something that goes back to the Tea Party's early days, you know, Tea Party inspired groups like True the Vote have been doing this going back to 2010. Um, you know, and they often will explicitly target um, Black and Latino um, districts uh, and try to, you know, tr- try to claim that the voting rolls in those states, in those areas, uh, are faulty, that they need to be purged, um, that they need to, you know, clean up and remove voting rolls. Um, so that's part of it. So there, there, is, there are those efforts to try to, uh, you know, kick, uh, literally kick people off the voting rolls that have been around for a long time. Um, but at the same time, then you have um, fueled by a lot of the election denial stuff post November, 2020, you have a lot of efforts to do things like um, uh, make it so um, it's uh, harder to vote by mail, making it uh, closing drop boxes, you know, eliminating ballot harvesting and doing a lot of the things um, that so many of the conspiracy theories around the 2020 election have fueled. Um, Those conspiracies have now become law um, and are going to make it much harder for the democratic process to function, uh, you know, in the 2022 election and certainly in 2024, um, so when you see something like the, you know the, the twenty you know the, you know the twenty thousand mules mockumentary that Dinesh D'Souza is at promoting, um, it is really more designed to encourage additional public policy efforts to make it harder for people to vote uh, and to uh, make it even harder to count those votes once they're made um and gumming up the democratic works as we move into you know another electoral cycle
1: interesting so that that dynamic you described of the local and the national kind of you know having that interaction would it be accurate to kind of describe the six other categories in the same way that you know the national sort of messaging on LGBTQ uh, rights and you know, anti-immigrant sentiment is kind of influencing the local. And then the, at the local level, you're kind of having laws being passed. And then that is then reflected back into the national level. Is there any situation where of the seven categories you selected um, that it was purely a local, fueled by local concerns? Like it was kind of separate from national concerns?
0: None of them are completely able to be separated from national concerns, but the one that had the most grassroots dynamic over the past couple of years was COVID denial, right? The, that effort was coming from the grassroots by and large. Um, th- that you didn't see the same kind of... Uh, initial forays into the COVID denial field, especially the militant wing of it um, that you did with some of these other areas. And so, you know, along this front, there was so much grassroots activity that, frankly, national organizations were playing catch up. Right? They looked for ways to get involved in the COVID denial space after they side kind of take off after really around April of 2020. Um, when you had a figure like Ammon Bundy hold his for you know hold that first big effort um, to disobey COVID restrictions uh, and set off a kind of a national movement um, to disobey COVID restrictions um, that spread like wildfire and you know Bundy's organization itself. Grew to over thirty-two thousand members in dozens of states around the country, and nationally, that that effort grew to about two point four million people who were supportive of various different COVID denial, uh, you know, COVID denial policies, and interspersed in all of that, uh, to be clear, um, was this reliance on conspiracy theories, and also. Um, many, many of these groups were used as springboards to, to push back against Black Lives Matter during that summer of 2020 and just kind of spread ideals of racial resentment and, you know, the kind of anti-CRT stuff, which became popular in those same circles, was a fusion of those two things. It was a fusion of the kind of of the kind of conspiratorial thinking with that concern about you know racial in, with those issues around racial resentment and that pushback against Black Lives Matter. Um, so. Uh, in that space, the kind of COVID denial wing of the movement became responsible in a lot of respects for both the kind of anti um, the kind of anti uh, COVID bills that we saw passed, but then also was really a springboard for uh, what cr- eventually crystallized at the, as the anti CRT stuff, but was really there even before it was given a name and so um that i think is also pretty responsible from while it was kind of named and crystallized by national figures including the you know none, including uh, heritage foundation and um you know and figures like C- tucker carlson it was still it driven by uh, a kind of grassroots effort that was a, a, a officially kind of named and uh, you know, given a, a face by those national figures. So then are
1: there legislative blocks? Like how how connected are legislators from different states with each other, right? Are, you know, is, is the guy in Missouri giving tips to the guy in Texas and they're both kind of pushing the same anti-COVID uh, or, um you know, anti-trans legislation, you know, how does, what is that sort of interconnection between legislators and the grassroots across state lines look like?
0: I think, you know, there, I think there's still a lot of work to do there. I think it's a, you know, an incredible opportunity, a research opportunity for folks to examine, uh, you know, in the report, we began to look at some of those to identify some of those uh, blocks that we're developing around various issue sets, and geographically. Um, And I think that's a great place to look to it. But I also think that there's a ton of work to do there in terms of fleshing out these various networks and how they, what they look like on the ground in terms of sharing information, who's developing the boilerplates, how the the kind of legislative uh, field is developing and how they're inspiring one another. Um, we've got a lot, I think, a lot of work ahead of us to try to get to some of those things that, which we just began to scratch the surface of in this you know pretty massive report.
1: So with that, like there's, there's two kind of statements like that kind of were just ringing in my head constantly, which is the old Tip O'Neill quote of "All politics is local or all politics are local. And then the other idea of states as laboratories of democracy, like you test things out in the states and then you can kind of pass them to the federal level. But your report is kind of, it's kind of scary because it's saying like, well, if politics are local and states are laboratories of democracy, really there's kind of a fascist or anti-democratic movement happening at the local level. Um, Could you sort of, what does the report tell us, about a post-Trump Republican Party? Is this sort of anti-democratic sort of fascist tendency going to get worse? Like, how do, we, how do we conceptualize and think about it?
0: I think what it means is that while states certainly are the laboratories of democracy, these uh, increasingly are looking more Frankenstein's lab than they are looking like um, places where our democratic ideals are being lived out. Um, Given that 22% of all state legislators are members of one or more of the far-right Facebook groups we identified in this report, I think that's a pretty significant problem. And given the, the legislative impact that they're having, I think that tells us that we've got a lot of work ahead of us. Not only to unravel the kind of impacts that they're having, uh, and you know, trying to defend what levels of you know what human rights and democracy we have left at the state level, but also because, you know, the where politics are, um, politics abhors a vacuum. And in this case, um, you know, success is often copied. So with this round of successful legislation, um, there is the potential for next legislative session to see this happen at, at an even greater scale, right? To see them have even more success at impacting the legislative process, right? The the more they're able to develop these larger blocks within legislatures and um, regionally and nationally, um, the more they can kind of inspire success, um, the better able they'll be a, um they'll have at impacting public policy um, and politics writ large. Um, You know, the other thing to keep in mind about all of this is, as we now have a dramatically more conservative Supreme Court, um, their efforts to push much of this, uh, of uh, things back to the state level means that states are going to be increasingly the areas in which um, politics is contested uh, um, because uh, federal legislation is more likely to not survive a Supreme Court challenge if it is trying to advance democracy or human rights. So I think that's another challenge that we're we're really up against in in this larger um, political picture. I also think that it means that um, we've got a real challenge ahead of us for us, irrespective of Donald Trump. Uh, You know, if Donald Trump were to drop dead of a heart attack tomorrow, these kind of ideas would live on well beyond, you know, beyond his presidency and beyond his campaigning. Um, These ideas have now um, gained some ideological cohesion. Um, And by that, I mean, particularly the kind of shared ideological construct that we in the report talk about when we talk about middle American nationalism, you know, the idea that so-called middle Americans, often either implicitly or explicitly defined as white, are being squeezed from above by the elites or the deep state and from below by the so-called multicultural hordes, um, working in collusion, um, to take away the the rights, privileges, and treasure from those in the middle, um, that ideological construct has become increasingly the norm uh, amongst these various different groups, and and th- that I think is certainly problematic, particularly when um, you know cons- uh, propelled by a an seemingly endless range of conspiracy theories that. Um, interject uh, you know, pretty explicit anti-Semitism and bigotry into these larger conversations and um, the level of eliminationist rhetoric and the kind of civil war talk if they don't get their way it hasn't abated since January 6th. So I think that it means that we've got a, a number of challenges ahead of us you know, Heraclitus once said, "You can't step twice in the same stream, and you know we're still going through from a far right movement perspective a kind of reconfiguration of the key players and networks and ideas that are driving the movement post January sixth um, But what certainly hasn't slowed is the kind of momentum that they've developed over the over the past few years." And they've been so successful at being strategic about turning that momentum into public policy gains. Um, you know, and that's not only true for the kind of state legislature stuff we looked at. It's also true, you know, at the county level, um, whether it be in, in county commissions or the sheriff's office, or it be down to the local school board, you um, they, there is an ideological drive to reshape the United States in, in, in a way that would look nothing like we see today if left unchecked.
1: Interesting. So uh, we've discussed a lot today, um, and we've kind of we've reached the last question, which is always uh, before we leave for the day, log off for the night. Uh, leave us, me, And the audience, something to think about, something to chew on. Uh, You know, this could be a provocative question. It could be something to look out for, but it is something to leave us, you know, to think about, you know, before we log off for the night.
0: That's a great question. I think what I would want folks to think about is how do we successfully counter and unpack the kind of constitutionally derived nationalism that is driving so much of the far right? You know, the ideas from the Tea Party on over are often described as constitutionalist. Um, that they wrap themselves in a kind of uniquely far-right interpretation of that constitution and are using that to redefine who and what we are as a nation. So think about the challenges to that and the challenges to how we define who and what we are as a nation in the 21st century.
1: Great. That's great words. Um, that was Devin Burghardt, um, one of the authors of Breaching the Mainstream A National Survey of Far-Right Membership and State legislators, uh, Legislatures. Uh, read the report. We'll have a link. It is incredible research um, and it's, it's kind of frightening, but uh, well worth the read. Uh, Devin, thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Oh, thanks. It was a pleasure.